0: Okay. So, how many of you have seen the movie Frozen? Wow. Okay, how many of you have seen the movie Frozen over, say, six times? (laughs) Okay, you can identify the families with small children. Um, So, the movie Frozen is a slightly popular movie for those of you uh, who may not be aware that it came out last year. It had one or two somewhat popular songs that came from it um, that you may or may not have heard. Or, really, may or may not have recognized as having heard because you heard them. Um, And it is a modern Disney fairy tale that. Does anyone not want to be spoiled? Okay. Like, you you can leave the room for like two minutes and you won't miss anything else. Okay. So, it's a modern Disney fairy tale. Um, And it's interesting because uh, Beth and I, when we were in California, have a friend who uh, saw the first 20 minutes of it and then shut it off. Because she said, well, I heard it was this uplifting, empowering uh, movie, but then I turned it on and uh, the, the woman, this princess who can't control her powers of freezing things, gets locked up in a tower and then it's really sad, her sister wants to play with her and she won't come out and it's just depressing. Why would you want to watch that? Uh, which if you turn the movie off after 20 minutes, you may, th- you, you, you may understand. Here's this woman, she accidentally, a girl, she accidentally hurts her sister. Then to protect her and her sister, she's locked up in a room by her choice. She's afraid of hurting other people. Then their parents die, and her sister, who has had her memories extracted of this event, does not know why her sister has suddenly locked herself up in the room and won't talk to her anymore. It's very sad. Uh, But the reason that the folks who made this movie did that was that they desired to tell a story in a particular way. And as I sort of squeaked out later on to our friend, well, you've got to establish the narrative before you subvert the narrative, which is a fancy way of saying what Frozen does is lures you in and says, this is like all those other stories that you've heard. Here we have the woman who's locked in the tower. Have have we heard other stories about princesses locked in towers? Yes, Rapunzel, others. Uh, And there's another princess here who's who's sort of trapped. What will happen, what they need is to find romance and a brave prince to save them. And in the early part of the movie, the, sister find, the younger sister finds her prince. Everything is well, and she wants to get married, and then disaster happens, and we spend the next sort of 40 minutes establishing that, oh, instead of the prince, you really want to marry the, the ice cutter, who is also there. Ah, this is a story we recognize, right? Oh, don't be fooled. It's not the prince that you want. It is the ice cutter that will bring you true love. You need not be uh, satisfied just with those who are high born. Instead, you you can uh, find love in any case, and love, true love, will overcome any sort of status boundaries. This is the first 50 minutes, 60, 70 minutes of the movie. Again, we're very comfortable with this narrative, the way that they tell this story. We all understand what's going to happen. There's even a little talking snowman who voices our id there, says, oh, you just need a, you need a, a kiss from, uh, from Christoph instead of from Hans. And the snowman talks like that. Uh, and so we get there, and we get there. And the older sister, again, accidentally hurts her younger sister in a way that only an act of true love will cure. So again, the snowman is saying, oh, you need a kiss from Kristoff. That will save you. And it doesn't save her. Because in the end, what happens is the act of true love to thaw out the frozen hearts of Anna, the younger sister, is not the act of someone else kissing her. The only thing that can warm her heart is to make an act of love, show an act of love. And so she throws herself in front of her older sister, Elsa, who has accidentally hurt her, to save her from a mob. And this thaws the heart. So what we discover is this is not a fairy tale about princesses locked in a tower who will be saved by a prince. This is a fairy tale about women who make choices. And it turns out the princes are basically irrelevant right? They happen to be there. They're along for the ride, just sort of serving a narrative purpose, which is a great inversion of what usually happens. But you've got to sit through that first 60 minutes to understand why this is happening. There's a reason that we tell stories in specific ways, right? In Frozen, they tell that story because it's familiar, and they tell that story because it is a formula that has minted Disney billions of dollars, But then they say, well, but we can make a twist and actually invest in the way in in, in making a change uh, that makes the story slightly different. And this came to mind partly because we have no internet uh, in the house right now, and Martha Jane is watching Frozen over and over again, uh, but also partly because the way that this story of Rebecca is told is really interesting uh, because it also has these elements that you expect uh, from ancient stories or stories from the ancient Near East or basically any kind of historical setting of a lot of money given to someone's father in order to get a bride. Right? That, that's an element of the story that's there. Right? Uh, the servant brings like, lots of camels, brings lots of gold, like, puts gold on Rebecca. And so that, that's an item, but it's different. And it's different in a few ways first way is this the story really is about Rebekah because as we have Abraham sending out his servant he says swear an oath that you will find a wife for Isaac from among my brother's people now as you recall Abraham left his father's family, his father's religion, his father's land and went far away and so you can sort of look at that slightly strangely He's like, well didn't you like run away from all those people or run with God to all those people but For various historical reasons, we want to establish that Abraham got the wife for Isaac from his family. Fine. So that's what's happening. But he tells the servant, she has to come of her own free will. He doesn't say, go to her father and purchase her for me. He says, if she doesn't want to come, then you're absolved of your oath. You have done your job. You have discharged your duty. Don't worry about it. So from the beginning of this story, it is about Rebecca's choice. It is not about finding her as Isaac's wife. It is about finding the woman who chooses to come. So that's really interesting. Then we go there, and the servant makes this prayer that we read, saying, oh, please God, make the first woman I see uh, when I ask her for water be the woman also who gives me water for camels, which Rebecca does. And this is the second interesting thing about the story for me, because... What do we know about camels? Anyone? They, well, they, they don't need a lot of water on, in the desert, uh, as Annette says, which is absolutely true. And why is it that they can go a long time between drinking? They store it all in their humps, So which means when they do find water, they drink quite a lot of water. And it, one of the commenters points out that a camel can drink 20 to 30 gallons in one watering hole. There are a lot of camels. They've come across the desert from a faraway land to Abraham's house, so presumably, or to Abraham's family, so presumably the camels are very thirsty. So Rebecca is basically saying, Why don't I give you a sip of water from this, and you can go rest over there for an hour while I lift water up out of the well and give it to all of your camels, right? She is carrying probably a hundred gallons of water to water the camels. Um, And all of you sort of. Looking at me glazed way. Think about what that says about what kind of wife that Isaac wants. He does not want a wife that's going to sit there and look pretty. He wants the wife that says, sure, I'll water all of your animals. I will help you along in your mission because Isaac is out in the wilderness, effectively. He's out on his own farm. They're establishing farmland somewhere else. And so what he's looking for is not the highest born person. He's not looking for a princess. He's looking for someone from his family who's willing to do work. And Rebecca is someone willing to do work. And she is strong, pretty much definitionally. right? If you're going to carry that much water, you're a strong woman. So the way we're setting up the story is twofold. One, hey, we are descended from a line of people who made choices. And they made choices to respect each other's opinion and autonomy. That's what Abraham is saying. If Rebecca wants to come, she'll come. If she doesn't, It's not your job to bring her back against her will. We come from a group line of people who are strong. Not only do they go out of their father's tent to worship God in the wilderness, they also were able to water a bunch of camels of basically strangers, so they're also welcoming. These are the stories, these are the things about Rebecca that we are told here, and the things about Abraham, and by dint of that, the things about Isaac. So in this formation story, when people are sitting around saying, hey, children of Israel, this is what you are and who you come from, what we're telling is stories that show values in how we want to live. We want to love one another. We want to help one another. We make choices. Everyone gets to choose. Right? That's the story that's being told here. That's the first half of the story. I'll jump ahead and skip the negotiations with the family and get to when Rebecca shows up with Isaac. Because this translation says Rebecca Rebecca gets down from her camel when she sees Isaac. Other people interpret that to say she fell off her camel, meaning she was so struck by him. It was love at first sight. And I don't know which one is right. I had a short week and did not look through too many commentaries of the original language. But that's the thrust you get from this, because then she puts the veil on as a wedding veil, and Isaac takes her into his mother's tent, his mother who has died. Isaac is grieving, and new life is born. In the midst of grief comes joy. And what does Isaac do? He loves her. They both chose. So this was a family not based on contractual obligation. This was a family built on free will and love. And as you tell the children, the story of the children to the children of Israel, that's the sort of family we want to be, a family of free will, a family of choice, a family of love, and especially when you compare it to so much of human history that is anything but that go through any English history textbook, right? We have all these women shipped off from Spain who don't speak English, or shipped off to Spain who don't speak Spanish, and these brides who are made just to consolidate the power of the kingdoms, and those are stories, too. But this story is saying we can find love. We can find empowering choices for all people, and that is our story, too. So in America, we can do the same thing with our founding fathers. We can say there are these great things that they did, and then we can say, well, wait a minute, there's sort of a problem in just telling the story of the fathers. There were other people, too. There were no women who were signing the Declaration of Independence, and that's sort of problematic, right? So we can say there are great things to be told by these people who were human, but we can tell the story of the founding of this country in ways that accentuates what we hope will be the future, while recognizing that just like the people of Israel did not want to go back to the time when they had to go 50 miles across the desert to find a wife, we don't want to go back to the time of the founding fathers, the founding mothers, but we want to find the things that they did well and use them to inform our lives to go forward into the kingdom of God that is being shown to us in this story. How do we move into this kingdom of God, which we have never seen on this earth, that is filled with people who make loving choices, with people who are empowered and strong in the way that they can be, who protect people that cannot protect themselves, who speak for people who cannot speak for themselves, who love all people as they love themselves, recognizing us all to be part of God's family. We tell stories in particular ways for particular reasons. So we go from here on this weekend when so many of us have had cause to meditate on what brought us to this place, either this country or this state, or the stories of our lives until now, the shared stories of our lives as a country. Think about how we tell those stories to the next generation so that we're moving forward into the kingdom of God. It's clear the authors of Genesis spent a lot of time thinking about this question. There are many different ways you could tell this story. Many different ways. We don't need to tell the story about Rebecca hauling the water out. We don't need to tell the story saying it's Rebecca's choice. We can say Isaac went and got a wife from his father's family and she was very beautiful. It was a choice that they made in telling the story. And we have that choice too. And that's the great thing about being who we are and where we are. We get to own our own stories. and We get to choose what those stories are and what that means for us and for those around us. Amen.